0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This is such a big week for our nation and really for our culture and our society. This week, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments on a case which may very well, end the terrible disaster of Roe v. Wade and what it has done to our great country. Um, singled out the most vulnerable and powerless amongst us as uh, people not worthy of protection by the law. I'm talking, of course, about abortion and all of the all of the claims uh, ever since 1973 about how important abortion is and how it has to be preserved from the pro-choice side, from the pro-abortion side. Most of them have been based on the on the idea that women need abortion that that abortion liberates that it makes women equal to men and that has lots of holes in it, that argument. So this week, we are dedicating this entire show to to that facet of the case for abortion and why it's full of holes. We are happy to have Erica Bakayoki back with us. She's of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She co-wrote an amicus brief, really delving into the notion that women need abortion. And this also ties into her book, looking at the history of, of real feminism, how feminism went wrong, and why. Before that, we'll, we'll be looking at the idea of choice, what true choice really looks like with Professor Deborah Savage of Franciscan University. And I'm here with my TCA colleague and good friend, Maureen Ferguson. And as co-hostess, we're so happy to have Dr. Deborah Savage, uh, professor of your alma mater, Maureen.
1: I'm so glad to be joining you for this interview today, Gracie. My time at Franciscan University was just about the most formative in my life. And I know we're in college admission season now, and there are many parents out there wondering where to entrust their child. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I couldn't. Recommend Franciscan University more highly, and I believe Professor Savage, you are a newer professor there. I know you've um, had a few different posts, but I understand you're relatively new at Franciscan. Is that correct?
2: Right. I've been associated with Franciscan for a number of years, but I did accept a full-time permanent faculty position here, and it's been. One, I've been here two months, <laughs> and uh, came from the University of Saint Thomas, where I taught at the seminary, and that was also great. But being here is. it's It's like a little slice of heaven, really. The colleagues I have are wonderful. The students are great. It's just really amazing. The faith community is so strong. Everything you could ask for.
1: It really is such a special place. And you also have a relatively new president, Father Dave Pavanka, who was just a few years ahead of me at Franciscan. And he's Mm -hmm. just a very special man and such a competent leader and and a very holy man. So I think great things are on the horizon for Franciscan University. Um, But Deborah, to turn to this article, you wrote this wonderful piece. It's so insightful and challenging. It's called Locating the Moment of Freedom. Women's Reproductive Rights and the Power of Choice. Mm -hmm. And we want to ask you about this because this is a big week in the pro-life movement with the Dobbs case being argued. And you begin this article by briefly summarizing some of the many compelling briefs in the Dobbs case, some Mm -hmm. about the constitutional arguments, um, some about the medical and scientific arguments. And you refer to the fantastic brief filed by my, um, my dear colleague and our hostess, Dr dear Gracie Christie, and also the reliance argument that women need abortion to advance in a socioeconomic sense. But but your article digs deeper to address this underlying claim that women must have the freedom to choose abortion to have power over their own body. And Mm -hmm. you say, yes, women do have the freedom to choose, but that that moment of choice and freedom is before conception. And do do I understand? Am I laying out your argument correctly here?
2: Well, it struck me that all the arguments that are coming out now, I mean, the barrage of arguments, I had trouble keeping up with them. And they're all so fantastic. It seems very clear that Roe has no basis upon which to stand. If there was any uncertainty before, there isn't now. These arguments are unassailable. But the truth is that the desire to have the freedom to both have sex and abort a child if I don't want it, I would say incompatible choices actually, is so so strong and so shrill in our in our culture that my, my feeling is that I don't know what the justices will decide. If, if God is on our side, they'll decide to overturn Roe and hopefully Casey, therefore. But I fear they'll, they'll be hesitant to do so because the one claim we can't seem to get past is that women have the right to kill the unborn child in their womb and that without that Right. They lose uh, some kind of empowerment. My argument is that the problem happens well in advance of the moment of conception. It's not true to say that woman's power depends on her having the ability to choose to kill a child. That's crazy. (laughs) The moment of freedom, the real moment of freedom, is when she says no to the invitation to have sex with someone whose children she has no intention of carrying. And really, and this is not just an argument about chastity or correct use of contraception this is an an ontological argument an argument about woman's personhood she has been for decades now convinced or persuaded that she has to imitate the body of a man in order to be considered fully human she's taken pills she's submitted herself to surgical procedures of all kinds she's prayed for miscarriages i'm sure And all because she thinks in order to have a place in society, she has to rid herself of this incredible gift that she is and has the capacity to bear children. And so real freedom for her, real power is when she decides for herself, no, I'm not ready to have sex with this man. I don't want to have sex with this man because to have sex with this man is, is as Jen Smith puts it, to say to them, I would like to have your children. And they don't. And so I grew up during the sexual revolution. And what I saw happening was a new form of slavery. And since then, we have convinced ourselves that freedom means sexual freedom. And it doesn't.
0: Deborah, my experience does support what you're saying. My experience with younger women, with girls, teenagers, young adult women, they don't seem to have any agency when it comes to sex. And they are simply, they're simply bartering their bodies for, and This is what I hear from them. They don't necessarily say it this way, but they say in order to be in the game, in order to be in social life, in order to date, in order to be just a simple, normal girl who is not considered strange and odd and excluded, she has to be sexually available. And I hear this over and over again. At the same time, we hear the other side, the side of the pink hats and the strident mm-hmm. shout your abortion and women want sex and women want abortion and women want to be free to have sex. And whenever they feel like it, they are convinced that women want that same relationship with sex that so many men want, that they want right. to have sex because they enjoy sex and it's a pleasure mm-hmm. and they don't want it, any strings attached. To me, it, watching young girls grow up and talking to young people, it's a complete lie. I don't see that coming right. out of their mouths and out of their attitudes.
2: Oh, right. It's become the default position, just this assumption that none of us can govern our own appetites, for starters, and that the appetites we possess ought to, endlessly imitate the instincts of an 18 year old boy. And what I think is not fully appreciated is that the woman's relationship to the sexual act is completely different in in certain ways from that of a man. She knows instinctively that there's more on the line for her than a mere bodily act. Because when a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, the man actually enters into the very being of the woman. A woman is generally oriented toward the inside. Man's proclivities are all externally focused. His involvement is momentary. But for a woman it's a completely different experience. So her instinct to refuse the sexual advances of man is actually reflective of a profound wisdom. She woman is the is the guardian of the the gift of self because it's only in her body that the fruits of that gift take hold and bear bear fruit and so you know this is what has is misunderstood and and missed by both men and women because what i observe is that because women have stopped saying no because it's expected that they should say yes uh, i had one young man say to me when i was in college well i'd better i'd like to hear your reason but it had better be a good one you know and wow. i remember I remember thinking I'd like to meet that young man again. but I have some words for him. But I want to say I remember at that moment realizing I didn't know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. And so I was just an instinct, right? Well, what I've come to understand is that it has to do with the fact that I can see the potency in the man. And I also understand that I don't give myself to him in that way, because he has to become who he's meant to be, as do I, for this relationship to really have the meaning it's supposed to have. The eyes of god it's it's only animals have sex without thinking about it
1: mm-hmm. yeah. you, you also say in your article that women have accepted the proposition that their capacity yeah. to bear children is a disease that must be yeah. corrected if they are to achieve equality but that we shouldn't have to conform to the norms of the male body and yeah. that we need a truly authentic feminism that begins with affirming women as women. So yes. could you share with us a little bit more about your vision of what that
2: looks like? Absolutely. I argue that I am the most radical kind of feminist, if we even want to still use that word. If you want to use it for now, that's fine. Uh, it's pretty loaded at this point. Mm-hmm. But i definitely, I'm the radical feminist because I say I don't apologize for being a woman. I don't regret being a woman. I'm happy to be a woman. I'm proud of being a woman. I'm gifted in the fact that I am a woman and so a truly authentic a, a real i guess i have to use the word feminism is one where woman qua woman woman as woman is affirmed the starting place for understanding how where women belong in the world is you have to begin with her nature with who she is and what this uh, whole movement is about is actually refusing the gift of who i am and um you know, the the problem I won't go on into this in any detail, but you can trace this problem all the way back to Aristotle, who declared that woman is a malformed male and that the male of the species is normative for the species.
0: No, oh, that's harsh. That's harsh, Deborah. <laughs> he
2: he literally he literally said that. I mean in in his generation of animals, he spends several pages trying to uh, sort out what could have happened, uh, what went wrong in the act of conception if a girl baby was born.
0: If you're just joining us, you are listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, with my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson, and we're talking to the very smart and philosophical Dr. Deborah Savage from Francisco University, and Dr. You were talking about how women have become enslaved. Really, with with mm-hmm. sexual liberation, they become slaves of of this new this new way of men and women relating to each other, which is not how women would prefer to relate to men. That they have a mm-hmm. uh, different uh, different needs and. and maybe deeper needs. The other day, I saw that there's been a great, um, a great increase in the incidence of self harm for young women um, here in the United States, also in other countries. And when I think of self harm and young girls, I imagine I have I've had I've had young girls and I have one now that's going through through puberty and starting starting to go into that the dating phase. And I always am struck by the way that when with our little girls, we take such good care of them and we treat them like they're our princesses, which they are and and We guard them from every harm. And then they become women and they go out into a world where they're not guarded and they're not protected and, and their value is so low on the social scale. And really they enter into a pornographied culture where being a woman is, you know, they're they're held to a standard which is so low and so degraded. And I'm not surprised that, that girls reject their femininity, that girls right. Uh, self-harm.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm not surprised either. In fact, I think I've read that there, Abigail Schreier says in her book that there are more girls transitioning to be boys than they're, you know, thinking about that or having to they'd rather be boys than there are boys going the opposite direction you know the evidence is all around us of this persistent notion that the the male the species is normative for the species and therefore the real a, a real human behavior is going to look something like what a man does and this shows up in this appetite for fame and fortune and power and you know careers and everything and what i say is that women have been tricked into accepting that the the norms that the cultures accepted, I think of them as enlightenment norms. Individuality, autonomy, relationships don't really matter. The only thing that matters is a kind of uh, a selfhood that's pursuing its own good for no other reason than because I want it. I and mean, all these things are, are things that have found their way into our culture really since its founding. And so what's been totally forgotten is that woman's place in the created order reveals that her her task is to care for all of humanity. She's just, you know, people say she was created second and therefore subservient. That's the interpretation of Genesis two. Actually she was born last and on the way up or created last and on the way up.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah that's right.
2: at, at the pinnacle of creation right that's, that's right so she an other point to make there is that woman adams in the garden alone with god and he names all the animals and so on there's a lot we could say about that but woman has never lived in a world not already inhabited by persons because the first thing she sees is adams face mm-hmm. and she is marked by that her horizon is always to see the person first. And so the degradation that we see in our culture of persons in every way, uh, uh, disrespect for the dignity of the homeless, the idea that we think it's best to just leave them alone on the street so they can exercise their freedom in ways that are so destructive, the death of 60 million children, our acceptance of, you know, genocide in China, all these things I would trace to the fact that woman actually did lose her place in our culture but she she didn't lose it because what what she really needed was to take the same place that man had she lost her place as the keeper of a vision in which the human person comes first she's to remind us that all human activity must be ordered toward authentic human flourishing and when she lost touch with that let's say in the 60s or certainly it started much longer ago than that men lost their place too if that's one way to look at the garden is that the serpent went after the woman because he knew that by going to the top he would get adam he would get everything and that's what's happened
1: well, Professor Savage, I love your thinking on this because the, the Dobbs case, this is the short game, but your argument is really the long game. And even if, please God, the court does overturn Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case, um, you know, abortion policy will just be returned to the states and we'll have some states like New York and California that are already primed for abortion on demand. Other states will enact protective laws like Louisiana or Utah or, of course, Texas are Already has. But, you know, the abortion lobby is not going to give up and go home. And as right. long as our culture is lacking in sexual integrity, abortion will be, it will right. just continue to be a very, you know, serious human rights problem. You know, the abortion lobby is already strategizing on telemedicine, abortion, and abortion pill, uh, pill sales online and such. So, so I love that you're making the case for sexual integrity. And right. it's very difficult to do in the secular world, but I, I just love following your work. So thank you.
2: Can and I just add one thing just really quick?
0: No, no, we have wow. plenty we have plenty of time. In fact, Doctor Savage, I wanted you I wanted to ask you to to connect this to Humane Vitae. Okay.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um well Sure. I've written quite a bit on that, so let me think for a second where I should start. I can say this. When I heard a few years ago that they were thinking of changing the teaching in Rome at the Vatican, I about lost my mind. I mean, what a betrayal of women because all the data shows that Paul VI was absolutely prophetic in what he predicted would happen if we went forward with contraception even, and everything that he said in Monte has come true. The truth is that what we have in our culture right now, and we will continue to have it generation after generation, is a bunch of wounded women, angry wounded women, and juvenile men walking around. Because what what the woman, when the woman says no, uh, when that's her choice, what she's calling on the man to do is to confront his disordered desires really and to um see for himself that he has to become someone in order to attract his beloved so now what we have are men that are spending all their time in their parents basements playing video games not even joining in the workforce in the in the process of gaining our so-called sexual freedom we've just really destroyed in many ways the lives of men anyway back to humanity though what the What I'm arguing is that there's a deeper meaning. We can't just keep repeating, well, the the two dimensions of the marital act are the procreative and unitive dimensions. That's absolutely true. But what's behind that? And what's behind it is a uh, recognition that the relationship that woman has to the sexual act is clearly different than the relationship the man has. Erica Bakioki has written extensively about this, about the asymmetry in the in the results of, of uh, the, the sexual act, woman bear much more of those than the man does. But what I where I've gone with it is to explore the sort of underlying anthropological realities um that uh the a woman knows in a very pre pre pre-verbal way what's at stake in that sexual act she knows that if she gives herself to someone who is using her she loses something that she will never retrieve because the man enters into her very being and that's when he does that with no intention of loving her with no intention of being serving as her husband, in fact, it, it's an act of theft, and not property theft because it's my body. It's a different kind of theft. It's sort of like a, an intentional destruction of something precious. And so, Paul the Six is absolutely right to point that all out. But if you one one way I like to think about it. Um, John Paul II says in Love and Responsibility that the marital act is our participation in the transmission of existence. And that is God's thing. Existence is God's thing. And because that, that moment where we participate in the transmission of existence connects us with heaven directly because God's there supplying the form, right? We supply the matter. We are directly in, in line with the force of that act from God to us. It's when we mess with it, when we approach the sexual act without fully understanding what we're about to do, it's like trying to grab a hold of a, an electrical wire that's flopping around on the street after a storm there's going to be a short and that's what we're seeing we're messing with something in our culture and have been for decades that is so fundamental to who we are it's the way we participate with god in the transmission of existence you can't mess with that and that's what we've been doing and as a result everything as you can see everything is falling apart everything and, and it's, it really can be traced back to this fact that we do not understand ourselves, we don't understand this very simple fact about human existence you know and so w- women actually in my my argument what i write about women hold the key to the recovery of our culture and it is as simple as saying no i will not have sex with you because i don't want to bear your children and i will only choose to bear your children under in the married state when there's a permanent bond between us and 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 a promise to care for the children that result
0: Dr Savage i was talking to some younger women recently and they were they're all married and all contracepting and i was talking to them about about moving forward and going into 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 not doing that and and i told them and i hope this is not embarrassing but i said to them when you have sex with your husband without contraception it is so different it's so spectacular i told them it's like god's creating and they yeah. were they looked at me like i was insane <laughs> yeah and maybe that's a little Maybe that's a little personal, but even that, oh. the fact that the fact that, that kind of interaction with one's husband or with one's wife, when you're very conscious of what you're doing and how you're participating with God, it raises the entire experience oh. to such a beautiful level.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely it does. It You know, in one of my articles, I say this is more than just the sexual act having the meaning it has. In the eyes of God, this is this is the sexual act. It is that, but it's it, understanding the sexual act in this way is free of any barriers and in full trust in the full sight of God. It it has a meaning at the uh, human level that is unmistakable. That I'm saying, I trust. I trust in my husband or my wife. I um I welcome life <laughs> mm-hmm. um I'm totally giving my making of myself a gift to my husband or vice versa you know
0: and, and uh, since and since our men are our husbands are are the the main providers in most in most yeah. households you're also handing your husband this huge um, gift of trust you say you I know you can yes. provide for us I I rely yes. on you you're strong you're uh, you yeah. know you work hard and and yeah. you will pull this family through i think that's a very beautiful gift to a husband no,
2: yes that the it invites self sacrifice on the both on on the part of both spouses and um and and also the act of abstaining if i'm uh, trying to be if we're being prudent about that in our marriage we're using natural family planning methods not a form of contraception just an intelligent recognition of the incredible wisdom i my body has (laughs) it's communicating to me all the time and i'm not paying any attention to that if i'm taking a pill so um even that that moment too is uh an invitation to self sacrifice and i would say that this is the perhaps the overriding problem in our in our culture today is that people have lost touch with the meaning of suffering with the meaning of self-sacrifice there's we, we are driven by individual autonomy and the pursuit of freedom completely misunderstood. Uh, freedom is the freedom to choose the good for myself. Fre- freedom to choose the bad, which certainly the death of a, of an unborn baby falls into that category. That is not freedom. That is slavery.
1: And and Deborah, you end this article so beautifully by reflecting on true love, saying it's precisely woman's power to say no to meaningless sexual encounters and say a yes to genuine love. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Deborah Savage of Franciscan University. Great to have you on today. Thank you.
0: welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson, my colleague from the Catholic Association, and we're talking to Erica bakioke of the Ethics and Public Policy Center about her amicus brief filed in light of the Mississippi abortion ban, challenging the idea that women need abortion to flourish, and also about her new book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Welcome to the show, Erica. It's always wonderful to be with you, Gracie. I was so happy to hear that you you got a very prestigious Intercollegiate Studies Institute award for your book. thank. I'm so happy for you, and, and I'm sure it's very well deserved.
3: Yes, well, I haven't been gotten the actual award yet, but I've been named a finalist for Conservative Book of the Year, which is, yes, a very prestigious recognition for the book, which I'm really excited about. And the
0: book is called The Rights of Women.
3: Yes, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. That's right. Out from Notre Dame Press a couple of months ago.
0: Erica, I know we've had you on to talk about the book before,
1: but it's such an amazing book. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just at the beginning of our interview here, just to summarize the main arguments of the book again for us.
3: Sure. So it's an intellectual history of the cause of women's rights that takes its bearings, really, from the original vindicator of the rights of women, Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote a treatise by that title in 1792. And what I do is really trace her thought through the women's rights movement and see it kind of as this lost strain, which bends through people like Francis Willard and Florence Kelly and ends up with Marianne Glendon. And I say there's a competing strain and that is uh, brought to us by John Locke and John Stuart Mill which bends through others and ends up with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I just show that there's this Wilson Crafty vision, which really understands the important work of the family of mothers and fathers and the work that they do in the home as really necessary to every other economic, social, political good. And that we've really forgotten about that, but especially put that really very much at issue in 1970s feminism, when basically the feminists of the 1970s kind of got in bed, pun very much intended, with the sexual revolutionaries, especially with the embrace of the birth control pill, but then, of course, with Roe v. Wade, and turned a lot of the real uh, arguments that women's rights advocates had early on, especially in the 19th century, very much on their head. Those 19th century women's rights advocates were very much against abortion and saw that as a way to, saw abortion not not only is an act of, violence against an unborn child, which they deplored, but then also as a way to tilt the playing field further in kind of the male direction and kind of incentivize men to, you know, go for sexual intercourse at all uh, costs and really leave the burdens um, for kind of sexual asymmetry to women. And that's exactly what we've seen, you know, since the sexual revolution.
0: So Mary Wollstonecraft and and the early feminists, their idea of liberating women was liberating women so that she could choose. The good, right? So, liberating women from her from her lack of education, from the fact uh, that she was infantilized and um, not allowed to not allowed to develop her mind. She also wasn't allowed to develop her morals, correct? So that's right.
3: That's right.
0: So that if if she's to be liberated, then she's to be liberated to have the same moral opportunities as men to do the good. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's right. Freedom is always for to reach the real end, that is the person. And for Mary Wollstonecraft, that end was virtue and wisdom. And so women... Women had been really kept out of kind of the full moral life by treating women's virtue as really only chastity and purity and that they ought to, you know, look good and marry well. And she said, oh, no, we need to open up the entire intellectual life and the moral life to women, too, so that they can develop the whole panoply of virtues. And we need to ask chastity of men. And so that was kind of her basic call, which the early women's rights advocates in our country really ran with. Wait, so that's a sexual revolution right there, isn't it? Asking men? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It is very much a sexual revolution in itself, and I think her vision was really beautiful that she saw, you know, engaged fatherhood and really the way in which the she talks about, you know, the husband and the father who is imperceptibly um, transformed by those states so that he becomes a real good citizen, someone who can bring public virtue to bear on all things. And so, and I think you know I've seen that to be very much true in my own family with my own husband. But you see how the life of you know marriage and fatherhood really matures men. And we really need more of that today. And and that was a real uh, insight of Wollstonecraft that we abandoned.
1: Mm, It's so true that fatherhood matures men in such a beautiful, beautiful way. Erica, jumping back to the the term sexual asymmetry, I, I think you're the one who coined that term. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what you mean by that? Because I think it's such a great insight.
3: Thank you. I do think it's a great sort of framework for thinking through these issues. And really, it just comes down to the basic fact that, you know, Aristotle observed thousands of years ago that males reproduce outside of themselves and females reproduce inside of themselves. And so there's a way in which when men and women engage in the same sexual act and sexual um, intercourse, men can physically walk away from the consequences of sex. Where women, were they, you know, were women to become pregnant, they cannot walk away from the consequences of sex. And so there's just a basic inequality in the sexual act. There's all sorts of other asymmetries we could, we could talk about too in terms of you know desire, satisfaction, early caregiving, but that's really the main sexual asymmetry. And so really one of the things I show in the book is that the earliest women's rights advocates, starting with Wollstonecraft and then up through really respected sexual asymmetry and wanted to use, you know, law and politics to respond authentically to sexual asymmetry, to allow women to have joint property ownership because of their important contributions they make in the home for suffrage, for what they call voluntary motherhood, which is asking that men abstain from sex when, when the couple is not ready to have a child. I mean, all sorts of things was always an acknowledgement and a respect of these asymmetries and then an authentic response. But then in the 1970s, The privileged response is really abortion, that the way we're going to sort of, quote, equalize this asymmetry between men and women, this inequality between men and women is to say that, well, you know, women can have consequence sex free, too. They just have to take the life of their unborn child, which is clearly not equal, right? If, if you want to say it's equal, it's sort of engaging in some imitation of horrible male abandonment or male violence, and that's certainly not the kind of equality I think anybody really wants.
0: You talk about inequality in sexual relations, and it makes me think of when my husband and I were first married, we were in medical school and then residency, and we were doing the same things, but I was always doing everything pregnant or nursing or... So I had this this huge extra burden going on in my life. At the same time, we were engaged in the same thing professionally. What worked for us was that we that our our workplace the university supported me in my in my pregnancies in the sense that they gave me 6 weeks off which you know doesn't seem like a lot now but it seemed like a big gift back then and that also they they also facilitated other things for me so that I could I could work while pregnant which is hard when you're studying radiology but I think that's the answer correct i mean the answer is not to make all women like men that they don't have pregnancies or if they get pregnant they abort the answer is to make the world welcoming to the whole woman
3: That's right. And so that men can, I mean, one of the things that I always say is that biology has both gifted and burdened women with the responsibilities of having children and culture ought to both gift and burden men with the duties of begetting them. So it is both, you know, because it's obviously a gift too, to be able to have this incredible, you know, a new human being that we're the ones who get to bear them, but it is a burden and it's hard and it's difficult to have a baby take over, you know, your body. And so how can men and, you know, good men throughout time have always been caring for and nurturing um, their wives or the mothers of their children who are caring and nurture for the child right and then society yes has to become more hospitable to that which only women can do and and that's really the response is you know all the all the sort of policies um, that you mentioned and you know more and really seeing the the work that mothers and fathers do in the home is really The essential work that all other work uh, builds upon.
1: So, Erica, this week, all eyes are on the Supreme Court. Uh, with the oral arguments in the Dobbs case, and you have both filed a brief in that case, and you've also written about it for National Review and in many other places. But, but your brief mainly addresses, I guess, the reliance argument that women's advancement is not dependent upon the right to abortion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, I know in your National Review piece, you talk about Elizabeth Warren talking about abortion as an economic right. Right. So um, share with our listeners what you argued in your in your brief on that point.
3: Sure. One of the most interesting things about Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and I did a really big law review article kind of looking into analyzing the whole case, is that, you know, the case really hangs by this thin thread of reliance that the The justices who are in the plurality in affirming Roe, that they, you know, didn't want to, um, they said, you know, if we had been on the court in 1973, we really wouldn't have gone along with Roe in the way that it did. But because the case has been around for you know, almost two decades, women have really started to rely on this right in society. Economic progress has relied on this right as a centerpiece, they say, of women's women's liberty. And so what we wanted to do in our brief, which is written on behalf of 240 uh, women professionals and scholars and several pro-life feminist organizations, is really chip away at that reliance argument. Because if you chip away at that argument, then you really... Um, can chip away at the whole case which really you know is is basically built upon this and so uh, we do all sorts of different things in the amicus brief which people can go read but one of the things that i focus on because it's really the focus of also my larvie article is the way in which society in and, and really feminists like elizabeth warren in claiming that abortion is good for women's equality, end up doing a real disservice to women, to pregnant women especially, but also to women engaged in early caregiving and men engaged very much in their families too. Because we kind of say, look, if abortion is this economic right, well, then we don't have to go full sail into really making the world, the workplace, more hospitable to pregnant women, to caregivers. And so, you know, there's the New York Times did a report recently that there's rampant pregnancy pregnancy discrimination in all sorts of firms and well of course there is because we're not taking the work of what the pregnant woman does seriously because we don't accord any moral status to the child in the womb so it's you know when you think about equality in those terms i mean one of the things i say in the national review article is that it's very similar to arguments that slave owners slave you know owners were saying about slavery is that like this is for you know economic and uh progress the entire southern uh system you know economic system was based Based on slavery at that time. And so it's a really kind of horrific argument to say that women's equality is based on, you know, them taking the lives of their unborn children.
0: There are a lot of argu- economic arguments, though, that take that that way. No, that we say, well, the the economy doesn't can't bear the, the way the way society is set up. We can't have large families, but that's putting the cart before the horse. People can't have large that's families right. because we set the economy up in such a way that large families are unaffordable.
3: Right. So that's right. It's, right. And it's and it's funny that it's the left that makes this argument, you know, the ones who apparently have so much trouble with capitalism, you know, it's quite ironic that they're the ones who are putting the economy ahead of the needs of the family, I think, and the good and important work uh, and essential work, really, that, that women are doing who are, you know, bearing children. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a bizarre argument. And it's one that really needs to make its way as quickly as possible out of uh, jurisprudence, for sure
0: recently we've noticed uh, here in the United States as other many other countries have a, a demographic winter approaching people are not having children I think maybe our, our population doesn't go down because of the immigration and uh, but people really were, we're starting to to get to European levels of reproduction and and God forbid Asian levels but do you think that knowing this that the demo, that our demography is our destiny in a sense and how the economy would be impossible to sustain with so many retired people and elderly people for for fewer workers. Do you think that that could change the idea of, of, you know, setting up our lives to not have children so that we can work and work and work for the economy?
3: Well, I certainly hope people open, you know, wake up to this um, real demographic winter, there are certainly people on the right who are talking a lot about this. I think that in some ways, you would think that the right and left could come together, really. I mean, you're seeing this a bit with regard to like Romney's family plan with um, Biden sort of, you know, putting forth some things, whether or not I agree with all of them, at least there's a sense of wanting to support the family and the work of the family. But I think that we really have to see that, you know, the economy right now, as you say, is not set up for the family, um, and it's it's quite, quite amazing that that we used to have an economy where one person, one worker, almost always the man, could bring in enough money to be able to care for a family, and now we're required to send you know to expect that both you know, husband and wife will be chief breadwinners of the family. And who knows what we're going to do with the children. It's all backwards and upside down. So I'm not sure if the fertility issues are going to get to people on the left. But I think certainly, um, we need to take these things seriously and have a real wholesale uh, kind of change and move back to seeing the family as the foundation for every other good. You know, years
1: ago, I saw a quote from Elon Musk, who has always had interesting insights into the future, but it came from sort of an unlikely place. But he, he said that the biggest problem in the future is not going to be overpopulation, but population collapse. Mm. Um, so he, he saw this coming quite a while ago. Just turning back to Dobbs for a minute, you talk about this lost strain of feminism that ends with Marianne Glendon. That just made me think of our newest Supreme Court member, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. I know she comes from a similar line of legal philosophy. And I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm just wondering if you're willing to make any predictions in the Dobbs case. I know we're going to have several months while, you know, there's a little bit of a black box going on in Supreme Court chambers, and we don't really know what the debate behind the marble doors will be, but how do you see this playing out? Are you willing to make any predictions?
3: (laughs) Well, I'm never a good, you know, prognosticator. I'm not a sort of a court watcher from everybody. I respect tells me all eyes are on Kavanaugh. You know, my hope, if it's not a prediction, it's certainly a hope that Roe and Casey are both overturned and Justice Barrett is the one who writes the opinion. There's some times in which the opinion is drafted and then people sort of decide which way They're going to go. And one would hope that Barrett would write such an incredible opinion that Kavanaugh would just be compelled (laughs) to have to sign on to the majority, which I think would bring Roberts along too. So, you know, we'll hope that that's the case. Well, now we know what to pray for, Erica. (laughs) That's right.
1: Um, Erica, thank you so much for being with us. We commend your article in National Review to all of our readers. And again, your book is just fantastic. Where's the best place for our listeners to find your book, Erica?
3: Well, it's always good to go to the publisher, so Notre Dame Press, but of course you can buy it wherever you buy your books.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to preach. Prepare us for this Sunday's gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. As we meet his forerunner, his herald, Saint John the Baptist at the Jordan River. John was chosen and sent by God to get his people ready to receive Jesus, when at last Jesus openly manifested himself to begin his public ministry. The Jordan Jordan bleared, not I am the one crying out in the wilderness. But rather, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert. John is the voice, the loudspeaker, the spokesman. The one crying out is, of course, the Word, Christ Jesus himself. John's message is therefore God's message, which John was screaming at the top of his powerful lungs. The message was urgent and clear. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. In the ancient world, the roads were a mess. Every time there was a battle, the roads would be attacked and bridges destroyed to try to stop the advance of the enemy. The weather took its toll as well, leading to all types of serious potholes and other obstacles. Anytime a dignitary would be coming, they would either have to fix the roads or build new ones so that the rolling caravan accompanying him would arrive without delay or hassle. John the Baptist is telling us that to get ready for the Lord, whom we're constantly bidding to come this Advent, we too need to prepare a way for him. We too need to make straight the paths. In the ancient world, preparing such a path meant a great deal of manual work, making crooked paths straight, rough ways smooth, and even charting paths through the mountains and valleys. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, John says, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. We have to call those topographical formations by their proper names we have to make low the mountains of our pride and our egocentrism. We have to fill in the valleys that come from a shallow prayer life, a minimalistic way of living our faith. We have to straighten out whatever crooked paths we've been walking. If we've been involved in some secret sins or sinful behaviors, the Lord calls us through John the Baptist to end it. If we've been involved in some dishonest practices, we're called to straighten the mountain due restitution. If we've been harboring grudges or hatred or failing to reconcile with others, now's the time to clear away all the debris. And if we've been pushing God off the side of the road. We've been saying to him that we don't really have time for him. Now's the time to get our priorities straight. The gift of Advent will succeed or fail on the basis of how well we convert and clear our lives of sin, so that the Lord may come to us. There's reason why John the Baptist preached at the Jordan River. It was more than a source of water where he could baptize. The Jordan River was the place that represented the border between the desert, where the Jews wandered aimlessly for 38 years after centuries of slavery in Egypt, and the Promised Land. By preaching his message there, John was inviting the Jews of his day to come out of the bondage of slavery, to leave their faults and wandering sinful lives behind and enter into the promised land full of God's blessings. The Baptist preaches the same thing to us this Sunday. He points us to a new exodus, from death to life, from sin to sanctity. It states very clearly that the path from the desert into the new promised land is conversion and the forgiveness of sins. To convert means more than to eliminate a bad habit. The Greek word for conversion is metanoete, which means to rethink and question one's whole way of living, judging it not according to polls and the lives of celebrities, but seeing our whole life through the eyes of God and making the love of God and others the real measure and criteria of our life. To convert means resolving to live the way Jesus lived and taught us to live, means ultimately a death and resurrection in which we die to the old Adam in us and begin to live a new life with Christ, by means of the forgiveness of sins gratuitously bestowed on us by him in the sacraments of baptism and penance. This summons of John the Baptist to conversion could not be more timely for us as individuals, as a church, and as a country. There are many applications we could make, but permit me to focus on just one, since this week the Supreme Court has heard the oral argument in the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case, which, God willing, will overturn the Shameful 1973 Roe vs. Wade and Doe versus Bolton decision and the 1992 Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision. Those judgments of the Supreme Court made abortion legal in all 50 states for basically any reason and has led to nearly 60 million deaths of totally innocent younger brothers and sisters in the womb sins, as well as led to so much collateral damage to mothers, fathers, grandparents, siblings, and society as a whole. St. John Paul II taught that we need to convert from a culture of death with its completely individualistic concept of freedom fostered by powerful cultural, economic, political, and educational currents to a culture of life. He repeated to us Moses' powerful words to the Jews, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil, a blessing and a curse. Choose life, therefore, that you and your descendants may live. For almost five decades... Our culture has been permitting the choice of death, the choice of abortion. What Pope Francis has somewhat shockingly but truthfully called hiring a hitman to solve a problem. Some in our society actually celebrate this form of industrial scale assassination of our younger brothers and sisters as a civil rights advance. Even though we know that when the inalienable right to life isn't protected and promoted, every human right is for that reason insecure and vulnerable to the decisions of the older or stronger or more politically or legally connected. One doesn't have to be Christian or religious, of course, to recognize and affirm the right to life. All we need is basic biology and elementary ethics, since we know that every child conceived is neither the mother nor the father, but a totally different human being with 46 chromosomes, who, barring a tragedy, if given the ability to grow, will mature in the womb, be born, and will grow through all the stages of human life just like you and I have. Ethically, we need to treat those who are younger in accordance with their human dignity. No one should have the right to discard any other human beings, whether preschoolers, those just born, or those waiting to be born. They're all equally human and equally deserving of our protection, welcome, and love. But as Christians, we have far greater motivation to get involved. Jesus told us, Whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. And whoever receives a little child in my name receives me. The abortion regime, therefore, is like giving Herod the permission to attack Jesus and the holy innocents. Since every abortion is, by Jesus' own words, like taking his life in utero. Every abortion is giving those in white coats a chance to rip another human being apart, doing things even worse than what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus on Good Friday. When we converted begin to look at life through the eyes of God and make the love of God and others the real measure and criteria of our life, we begin to see just how horrible abortion is. But as Christians, we also know there's hope that just as God brought the greatest good of all time, the resurrection, out of the worst evil of all time, the crucifixion, so we can likewise bring the good of a culture of life even from the deadly evil of the culture of death. He offers that hope because forgiveness of sins is possible. Forgiveness of mothers who have chosen abortion out of fear. Fathers of unborn children who have abandoned the mothers or pressured them toward abortion. Family members and friends who have recommended or funded abortion. Doctors and nurses involved in the grisly business. Politicians who have supported abortion. Judges who have invented a right to abortion. Those in the media and education who have promoted abortion. And to everyone else whose individual choices have led through abortion to the death of the innocent and the fostering of a culture of death. Despite all of that evil, there's hope. John the Baptist this week points out Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And one of those sins that Jesus come to take away is the horrible sin of abortion. That's why this message of conversion from John the Baptist each Advent is such good news. Because it's an expression of God's love giving us a second chance, or a third, or a 70 times seventh chance. We're sinners, yes, but God comes to save us from those sins. And Jesus tells us that heaven rejoices more for one repentant sinner than for the 99 who never needed to repent. That's why all of us need to pray not just for our Supreme Court justices, that they'll have the wisdom and the courage to overturn the perversion of law that 49 years ago made abortion legal throughout the United States, but for all of us in the country, that together we will build a culture in which every child is protected in law, welcomed in life, and loved until the end. As we prepare for the awesome privilege to receive Jesus in Holy Communion this Sunday. Let us not just ask him to strengthen us for that mission of the conversion of our culture, beginning with our own conversion, Not just to help us convert our fellow family members, friends, neighbors, and parishioners who might support abortion. But to help us through lovingly receiving him under the most humble appearances of bread and wine. To come to recognize and love him in the least of his brethren among us. The littlest boys and girls in the womb whose silent screams call us to conversion together with John the Baptist.